Let me just tag on to what Jason said. We would love to have you take the rest of the invites um, on your way out the door here and invite all your friends and family. Let's fill up this 11 o'clock service on Christmas Eve. And let me just say, we have a value around here, my circle, my responsibility. And what that really means is we believe that God's placed each one of us in a specific circle with people around us, friends, family, coworkers, and he's given us the responsibility and the privilege of reaching them for Jesus. And for some of those people, you are their only Jesus person. You're their only connection to Jesus. And around this time of year, it's just such a great opportunity when other times perhaps um, they're not clued in. But this is a great opportunity to invite somebody to church where they're going to hear the gospel and hear about Jesus. And um, who knows? Maybe that will be the connection that starts them on a new trajectory of following God. And so I encourage you to invite your friends and family and uh, come on out for that. All right. Hey, we are going to dive into the message now, and if you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we are kind of wrapping up our Advent series here in the book of Isaiah. And today, in a little bit, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to be looking at a sign, a sign both with a near-term fulfillment and ultimately a sign that connects to Advent. And Advent, like we've been saying all along, is this time when we celebrate and we remember the, the coming, the first Advent, the first coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And also, we recognize we're in this period in between, and we, we wait with anticipation for when he will return and we'll be face-to-face -to -face together again. Um, and, and so that's kind of the heart of the Advent season. And so all throughout Scripture, you see... Signs. God gives his people signs. And let me just say, I think a lot of times life is confusing, isn't it? Life is confusing. A lot of times things come out of the blue. A lot of times we're seeking, we're not quite sure which direction to go. And I don't know about you, but I think something we have in common is we often wish for a sign. Like, God, I wish you'd just show me which way to go. You'd give me a sign of what I should do in this situation. Sometimes I think that's direction related in our lives. We wish for a sign to give us direction. Like, God, should I go, you know, should I take this job? Should I not take this job? Sometimes it's a, uh, um, actually, I think when it comes to signs, what we're really looking for is a sign that brings us hope. Because for some of you, this is where you're at today, is you're just in a season where you're wondering, God, do you see me? Do you care? You're just in a really, really difficult time. And what you need is, is, is really God just to confirm to you that, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he's with you. Uh, as we were t talking about signs, uh, getting ready for the message, all these songs started coming to my head with, uh, with signs like, uh, uh, hit me baby one more time, show me a sign. Um, that wasn't a, probably not a good sign. Um, I saw the sign and it opened up my eyes. Um, and then I remembered uh, this song, I Need a Sign to Help Me Know you're, you're There, right? Remember that one? Train, 2003. Have you ever noticed, like, the music when you were young, like, that's the music you like for a long time? And then your, your kids are like, that's on the oldie station now. And you're like, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but oftentimes it's true. Like, sometimes we need a sign that just brings us hope in a situation. Now, sometimes... I think we wish for a sign that actually tells us what we want to hear. 
Now, if we're really honest, sometimes we sort of made up our mind on what we want, and then we just sort of ask God for a sign to confirm this. Um, I remember being in my 20s working at this camp up in the mountains, and uh, we took people out in the mountains, and this, this group came up from Houston, and there was this, uh, you know, girl leader on the trip, and about 12 and a half minutes later, I'm like, she's the one, and <clears throat> she wasn't, <laughs> but I remember, like, flipping through my Bible. I don't recommend this. Don't do this. Uh, flipping through my Bible, just hoping to land on a scripture that's like, go forth and marry her if. Um, I think, I think there's one in there somewhere, you know, and uh, it, it didn't. And obviously, uh, as, as you know, a uh, theologian in the 90s uh, once said, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. And those chuckling have heard of that theologian or not named Garth. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad as I look back on my life, right? So sometimes we just, we're asking for a slam, but if we're honest, it's just kind of to confirm what we already have our mind made up towards, right? Sometimes we actually, God gives us some signs in our life, but they're kind of maybe not, they're a little more subtle, and oftentimes we ignore those signs to our own peril. Sometimes common things, right, like in life, a traffic sign, and then the, the curve comes up, and you're like, whoa, I should have slowed down, right? Or a speed limit sign, and some of you are like, that was an expensive ignoring of a sign, right? Some of you have one of those. I ignored the check oil light when I was a teenager. The, the oil light, don't do that. I'm just telling you, don't ignore that sign. It didn't go well. Sometimes in our personal life, it's things where we just keep plowing forward, where there's warning lights going off, right? Uh, like a relationship beginning to show cracks, and you just kind of ignore that. Or it's out-of-control stress in your life, you just kind of ignore that and keep going. Or a health thing that you just sort of ignore until it becomes something you can't ignore. Sometimes signs, sometimes those subtle signs come in the form of other people. Warning from a concerned friend. And haven't you often noticed, I, I have, that other people can see signs that you sometimes can't see yourself? Especially like people maybe a little bit older than you that have done life a little bit longer than you, and, and they're kind of coming alongside of you going, hey, I'm seeing some signs here. You may be ignoring these, but that you might want to pay attention to them. I see danger ahead. I remember when uh, my wife and I, we're just married and had a, had a young friend. And we were like, man, we see, are you sure? We saw the, the signs in this relationship. We're like, are you sure? Uh, we have, we have, we're a little concerned. And, and sure enough, we plowed forward, ignored it, and uh, didn't go well, right? And some of you, you have some peer voices maybe who you go to that tell you what you want to hear. You know who they are? And then you have some people maybe a, a little bit further down the road that are actually like, hey, you might want to pay attention to that. You may want to change your course and change your direction in life. In fact, um, let, me just, uh, let me just talk to the young ladies in the room for a minute, okay? Because you, you especially have this tendency, um, especially when it comes to relationships and stuff, to go, I'm just going to listen to my heart and watch some cheesy Christmas movies that reinforce that and talk to some friends. Um, don't listen to your heart. Listen to your mama, okay? No, I'm serious, because the Bible tells us your heart, our hearts are actually deceitful. 
And oftentimes our hearts tell us what we want to hear in the moment, which isn't actually the thing that's best for us in the long run. Your mama, on the other hand, probably has your long-term well-being in mind, okay? And so that's just a little freebie if you're, you're young in, in the room. Sometimes it looks like a passage of Scripture that's just like you, you read it and you're like, oh, that's kind of that's hard because that kind of corrects, that kind of flies in the face of a direction that I wanted to go. And you just tend to just ignore that or pretend that still small voice of the Holy Spirit that just as you're quiet, like constantly says, hey, let's, I want to talk about this. You're like, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not going to deal with that, right? See, in the Bible, the signs, uh, really, over and over, you see this example that signs were around to point people toward God and point people back to God, point people towards trusting in God. And some of you are here today, and you're in a place where you're kind of looking for a sign, something to encourage you. Maybe you walk through the door. Really what you're looking for are signposts of how do I reconnect or how do I connect for the first time with God. And so today we're going to be looking at a sign that we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 7. It's a little bit different kind of a sign, more subtle, something that could easily be missed. It's tied to Advent, but ultimately it's the most important sign of all. If you have your Bibles, we're going to dive right on in in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. And here's how it goes. When Ahaz son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. And so, um, lots of names in that verse, right? Lots of names. And I know last week I, I did a lot of like history and archaeology, and some of your eyes glaze over when I do that. And so, um, I'm just going to do a tiny little bit of that today so they won't glaze very long, okay? Um, but Ahaz, I just want to like lay out who these names are so you understand what's happening in this chapter we're about ready to read. So Ahaz is King David's great, 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 great 12 times grandson. So the, he's, he's the king, he's a king, um, and he's King David in the line of King David. And we not only read about him in the Old Testament, in Kings and Chronicles, as well as in Isaiah, what we're reading here, and a couple other places, we also find him, and this is really cool, we find him in archaeology. And like I said last week, over and over and over again, as they dig up stuff out in the ground in the Middle East, they find all these things that just confirm how historically accurate the scriptures are. And so they found the earliest, one of the earliest references to Judah in what's known as the Nimrud tablet. And it has an inscription. This goes all the way back to ancient Assyria. It has an inscription that talks about Ahaz, the king of Judah. And they've also found what's called a bula or his official seal that he would sign documents on that says this belongs to King Ahaz, an official seal fired in a, in a clay oven. Pretty cool. And so it confirms exactly how historical these accounts are in Scripture. And so you have Ahaz, you have Rezin of Aram. This is modern-day Syria, and this is the king of modern, what, what today would be modern-day Syria, uh, a powerful nation in the time. And then you have Pekah, king over the northern ten tribes. And we've been showing you this map all along of how the, the nation of Israel split into the northern ten tribes, the kingdom of Israel, and the southern two tribes in Judah a couple hundred years before this. And the, the thing about this is for the last couple hundred years, 
since the northern kingdom had broken off this quarter of the Middle East. They've had regional skirmishes, but they've been fairly stable on a geopolitical kind of terms, and that was all about ready to change because there would be five major world empires over the next period of years that would seize control of this part of the world, and the first of those was the empire of Assyria. And so this account we're looking at takes place in 735 B.C. Syria and Assyria, or Aram and Assyria, have been enemies for a long time, fighting back and forth. And Aram forms an alliance with the ten tribes of Israel, and um, they decided they want to defend themselves against this growing threat superpower over here. And they decided before they do that, they're going to go down and take over the southern two tribes of Judah. And they're going to install their own king down there. So now they have a stronger alliance, possibly to strengthen their position opposing the superpower. So that's the scene, and that's the players, the major players we're looking at right now, okay? And so it goes on, uh, and the thing I want you, you to recognize as we dive into this is very early on in his reign, King Ahaz is faced with a crisis. He's faced with a crisis. He's faced with a decision. And it says in verse 2, Now the house of David was told, Aram has aligned itself with Ephraim, another way, uh, one of the tribes that represents the whole nation, kingdom of Israel up north. Lots of names. I know it's a little confusing. Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Now, I'm just guessing some of you in the room are, are facing some kind of event in your life that makes you feel a lot like you are a tree that is shaking in the wind. Maybe for you, that's looking like a financial downturn in your industry, and you're just wondering how, how this is going to work out. Um, maybe it was a relationship that was going well, and you looked up one day, and you're like, how did that go south? Maybe it's a child that was following God, and for whatever reason, they're not following Jesus anymore and making decisions that break your heart. Maybe the phone rang, and you found out yourself or another loved one close to you is facing a health crisis, and all of a sudden, your whole world blew up. Facing something, a change, a decision. And I think this is something we can relate to because all of us at some point in our life face a season that tempts us, a season where our hearts feel like they're shaking in the wind, where fear and anxiety enters in. And verse 3 says this, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, share Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. So we have Isaiah the prophet who wrote this, this book of the Bible, and then you have um, his son. And you notice the specific details in here? I like to highlight this um, oftentimes. One thing you'll notice as you read through the scriptures and as you read through the gospels is details, details, details. Why are those in there? Because these are historical events that happened in real places at a real time. And people reading this would go, oh, yeah, I know exactly where this is at. I know exactly where this place is at. That's why I often include like so much history and archaeology, because I want you to understand these aren't just Bible stories. You know, that's in some sort of Bible storybook that teaches us good. These are historical events. These are historical accounts of God's interaction with humanity and in the Gospels of God walking this planet in the person of Jesus. Verse 4, say to him, to King Ahaz, 
Okay, remember, he's facing a crisis. He's afraid. He doesn't know what to do. He's tempted, we're going to see in a little bit, to take matters into his own hands in a way that could be disastrous. Verse 4, say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Some of you need to hear that today. Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Let me say it one more time. Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of fire with the two kings of Israel and of, uh, of Syria here because the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. In other words, you got these guys. I want you to keep calm in the midst of this threat. I know the circumstances are looking dire. I want you to keep calm in this situation, God says. And because he says it, you can keep calm, right? And he, he looks at these kings and he calls them, from God's perspective, from Ahaz's perspective, it's a scary situation, but God sees the beginning from the end. God sees the real truth, and he says, nah, they're just like smoldering stubs. In other words, you're blowing this threat out of proportion. You're making a, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You've heard that expression, right? You're getting ready to do something that is a huge overcorrection and take things into your own hands that could have dire consequences in response to something that, I've got this, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. How many of you have ever been on the ice and you started to, um, you started to slide and perhaps you overcorrected and pretty soon you found yourself, whoo, all of a sudden you're spun around. If you grew up in Colorado, you've done that a time or two. If you're from California, um, let, me, let me give you a heads up, okay? Uh, don't overcorrect. You just gently correct into ice. Some of you, that literally was worth the price of admission right there. Um, so you'll thank me for it at some point. <laughs> we often overcorrect in life because of fear, don't we? And instead of being careful, being calm, and not being afraid... We react out of fear, we freak out, and, and we end up doing more damage in our lives than the threat actually on the other side. This is such a classic thing people do. I, I read this author a, a while ago, um, and he, I, I really loved some of the, the books he read, and I remember reading this as, as, as a younger man, and he had did this thing to confront fear in his life. He called it fear setting where basically there's a lot of things in our life that we're afraid of, and ultimately, even if they happened, it wouldn't be that bad. Like, you're afraid of being broke, and yet you look back, some of you, you're in your 40s or 50s, and your favorite time was in, when you were first married in your early 20s, and you were dead broke. And like, you lived in a tiny apartment, and you remember that with fondness, even though now you're scared of that, right? That's serious, like we freak out about stuff. And I know you're arguing with me in your head already. Well, it's a different situation. I'm afraid. Okay, but what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is oftentimes the things in our life we're so afraid of aren't really that big of a deal in, down the road, right? So this guy, he would go to confront his own fear. See, because oftentimes our fear is just of being awkward, isn't it? In fact, for some of you, that's why you struggle um, talking to people about Jesus, talking to people, inviting them to church, because it just feels awkward, and so you don't do it when you may be their only connection to Jesus, right? And so this guy would do something. He would go do awkward things. He would go um, to the mall 
and there would be like a bench at the mall, and he would lay down there and t- set a timer and lay there for 15 minutes. That's weird, isn't it? And people go by just like looking at him weird. And he did it on purpose. Didn't hurt anybody, but did it on purpose to prove something to himself. Awkward won't kill you. Like the thing you fear, the way other people think of you, guess what? It's overblown, right? Um, I have kind of a funny story associated with that, and he doesn't know I'm about ready to tell it. So um, so my dad, who directs the nonprofit here in, here in town, um, he was doing yard work and like having a hard day. And he had to run to the run to the mall and pick up, I believe it was a set of eyeglasses. I'm sure he'll correct me later if I'm wrong. And um, um, so he had to go pick up a set of eyeglasses at the mall and they weren't quite ready yet. And so he had to wait around for like 15, 20 minutes. And so he had been working all day and was just in work, scuzzy work clothes, dirty, disheveled, and uh, just ran in to pick this up. Now he had to wait. So he's sore. So he sees a recliner massage chair, you know, one of those really nice ones, and goes and sits down in that and falls sound asleep. And so he's sleeping in this massage chair in the mall, and one of his employees is walking by with a friend, and the friend looks over and goes, oh, look at that poor homeless man. (laughs) And, And the employee goes, that's not a homeless man, that's my boss. And and it didn't hurt him. He's fine, you know? So anyway, you might want to try that, or you might not. But the whole point is oftentimes we blow things out of proportion, don't we? And so Isaiah comes and he says, hey, be careful. Stay calm. Don't be afraid. Because what? Poor decisions are often made when you're afraid. You realize one of the things that Jesus most often says in the Gospels is, fear not. Fear not. Don't be anxious. It's, do you realize that's a command in the New Testament? That is a command we often ignore, don't we? Like, Jesus doesn't know how stressful my life is. <laughs> really? Fear not. Be calm. Don't be afraid. Verse 5. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's sons have plotted your runes, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. So the prophet acknowledges, hey, this is a serious situation. Now you're blowing it out of proportion. Why? Because God's on your side. Because God's going to make you a promise, and you can hang your hat on that promise. Because why? Because he's the God that sees the beginning from the end. Nothing comes... Nothing takes him by surprise. He's not asleep somewhere. He's not like the small g gods of the nations that that can't really do anything, that can't predict the future. This is a God who can predict the end from the beginning. And he says it's not going to happen. It's not going to affect you. So you can rest in that. You can be calm in that. God made you a promise. He goes on, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. There's the only people. Within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern nation of Israel, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. Just people, and let me make a prediction here. In 65 years, you won't even be able to recognize the northern kingdom. 
it's going to look completely different. That that is threatening you right now, threatening to wipe you out and take you over, um, it's not even going to be around. God makes them a promise. And then he goes on, and he says this, and this is the warning in here. Pay attention to this, because the, in moments of crisis, you have to make a decision. And here's the decision Ahaz is called to make. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. See, moments come to us in life, whether we're ready for them or not. I, I doubt you've ever, like, you know, planned a crisis that happened into your, in your life, right? It just happens. But in that moment, oftentimes those moments are um, pivotal, deciding, defining moments of life. The way you choose to react and respond. Are you going to lean into trust of Jesus or are you going to take, try to take control by your own strength and, and like figure this whole thing out? Are you going to bring it to him first? Are you going to ask God, God, what do you want to do in this situation? Are you going to be firm in your faith that God sees the beginning from the end? God, I, I know you're with me in this. I, I don't understand. See, so many people, they hit a crisis time, a difficult time in their life, and then actually um, crises have the potential to either draw you closer to Jesus and into deeper levels of trust or to drive you away from him if you allow them. Some of you experienced a moment like that. Maybe you're in one. Maybe a family member is. For some of you, you have a decade or two where you walked away from the Lord, and you can trace it back to a disappointment in your life where there was something that hit you that you didn't understand and you weren't ready for. And it actually, um, I remember hearing this one time, and I often quote it because I think it's really helpful, that oftentimes what happens in our lives is we have a disappointment. For whatever reason, we're disappointed. We, we wanted something from God, and he didn't come through in the way that we thought he would. And that disappointment leads us to being disillusioned. And we begin to doubt, well, maybe he doesn't really care. Maybe he isn't really there. And for so many, if you're not careful, that leads to a point of detachment. Where for some, they just walk away from, from faith entirely. For others, for all intents and purposes, they just sort of stick their faith, you know, on the back burner. And years go by. And this is an invitation in here to Ahaz in this moment. Are you going to lean into trust are you going to take this to God? Or are you going to trust what he says, that he's with you, that he has a plan, that he sees this? Or are you going to take matters into your own hands? What are you going to do? If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. This is a defining moment. Make a choice. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or the highest of heights. So he ups the ante now, Isaiah does. He says, okay, this is a defining moment. You're going to trust God in this moment or you're not. And so here, here's a pathway back to God. Ahaz, I know you've not been close to God. You're brand new in your reign. You have the opportunity to set the course for what your life and your trajectory as a king and the course of your nation Choose wisely, and God's off making you an awesome offer. It's kind of a blank check. Ask him for a sign that he's going to do this so that you can trust him more. Ask him. This is an opportunity to step into faith, to say, okay, God, you're telling me this. Um, 
Can you, can you just show me and confirm that this is real and true? Ask me. <laughs> See, I love it here. Now, if you read ahead, what you understand is Ahaz doesn't end up being a good king. He makes some terrible choices. And here's what I find so interesting about this. The God who predicts the end from the beginning, who remember all the way back at the beginning of the series says, um, Isaiah, you're going to go preach to these people. And I'm just giving you a heads up. Many of them won't respond and turn back to me. Now, there's going to be some really bright moments like the reign of Hezekiah that we looked at last week where God came through, confirmed in archaeology, and rescued them in an amazing way. And there's this time of peace and prosperity, actually. But there's some really dark moments. And ultimately, the people are going to rebel. They're going to turn. They're going to go into idolatry. They're going to end up going into exile. In fact, it's interesting because the name of Isaiah's son, what was that? I can't remember. In verse uh, 3, Shir Jashub. You know what that name means? Only a remnant will return. So Isaiah's firstborn, God tells him to name him, only a remnant will return as a prophetic sign to the people. Can you imagine growing up with that, your name? You're like the bummer guy everywhere you go, reminding them of your crazy prophet dad who's all doom and gloom. (laughs) Only a remnant will return. Hey, King Ahaz, have you met my son? His name's only a remnant will return. Warning. (laughs) See, ultimately they will go into exile. But here's the crazy thing. That God still offers Ahaz a choice, and it's a real choice. To step into faith and change the trajectory of your life and the future of your life and your people over the next few years. And this is the amazing thing to me. And so many people like freak, like have these intellectual discussions, you know, predestination, what, what's the truth around that? How's God sovereign? And yet he calls us to pray. And the truth is, God, who can see the end from the beginning, (laughs) tells you your choices matter and your prayers matter and actually make a difference and actually change the trajectory of history. It's an incredible responsibility, and yet also you can rest in the fact that what he says is going to happen. The Messiah will come, right? Redemption will come. They're not going to wipe you out. I'll preserve a remnant. Guess what? It's going to happen. So you can rest in that, that despite your choices, God is good, and yet your choices matter. And I love this because for some of you, you really struggle struggle because you did your best. Um, You you prayed for your kids. You loved your kids. You brought your kids to church. And for whatever reason, they chose not to follow Jesus. And some of them are making heartbreaking choices. You know, as parents, we cannot direct the course of our kids' lives. Like, we talk about God lighting a fire in, in the hearts of our youth, and, and we love events like Why Not? Because they do that oftentimes. It's those moments, right? But ultimately, at par- parents, what we do is we create the environment. Like, we stack the, the kindling so that when God sparks a fire for them in, in, in his heart, it, it goes. <laughs> like, they've got the basis, right? They know the Bible. We've raised them in the, in the knowledge of Jesus. But ultimately, it's God who lights that flame. And fans it, right? Young people, your parents' faith is not enough. You can't just go on their coattails. You have to decide, am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to trust him? 
Am I going to give my life for him? Am I going to surrender to him? All right, so he has this, he has this moment. Ask the Lord for a sign. He's going to show you how real he is. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, and this is tragic, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. <laughs> now, that sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Especially for us like New Testament Christians that, uh, you know, maybe grew up in church and, and know, remember Jesus being tempted? You remember Jesus quotes this. Thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test. Why? Well, Satan tempts him, what? To short-circuit God's plan to take matters into his own hands to try to get the kingdom without going through the cross. And so to risk his life in trying to do that, because God will save you. He'll raise you up on angels, and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to short-circuit God's plan. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Ahaz quotes it. This is a scripture from the Torah, from Numbers and Deuteronomy. But here's the thing. See, it sounds spiritual. Ahaz knows enough of the Bible to pull a verse out of context and twist it because he's already made up his mind what he wants to do in the situation. And so he uses the spiritual-sounding verse. But here's, here's the irony. Is this verse actually was all about the people of Israel not believing the promises of God, not going into the promised land, not taking the risk that wasn't actually a risk because the God of the universe was with them. Instead, what did they do? They took another lap around the desert for 40 years. Well, that whole generation, that whole generation died off. That's a lot of time, East of Loma. Last, last service, I said Loma. I think I offended some people, so way out there, right? It's a lot of time just wandering around. And so he pulls this verse out of context. Sounds spiritual, like, oh, I'm a humble man. But the reality is he'd already made up in his heart what he wanted to do, so he wasn't going to trust God and step into the thing that God had called him to do. He wouldn't step forward in faith because he already had a plan. His plan was he was going to circumvent his two little enemies to the north that God says, you're blowing this out of proportion. He was going to go get the big guns. He was going to go form an alliance with the king of Assyria. Bad news. But here's the lesson in this. When you know enough, and if you grew up in church, you know enough, you can proof text your own disobedience. Uh, you can pull a love your neighbor out of context. You can pull a judge not out of context in order to justify whatever you want to do. Jesus said judge not. Don't, you, you can't tell me that I'm in sin. It's very easy. That's why the whole council of Scripture Paul talks about, like getting in the Word in the new year, we're going to challenge you. Get into the Word. If you've never read through the Bible, read through the Bible. Some of you will do that in replicate groups, which is great. But part of that is, is you got to understand what is God calling me to do in this life, not just, um, not just on a level of specific choices like, you know, what vocation, but literally how am I supposed to live my life to avoid the things that God says will shipwreck my life? And then am I going to align my life to what he says? If you're not careful, this is exactly what the, the Pharisees did. <laughs> if you're not careful... You can pull stuff out to make you feel really good about the place you're at where actually your heart is very far from God and your life is not submitted to him. We've watched this 
I mean, in ministry over the years, you know, you have people that make choices, and then you're like, got to confront. say, man, do you know what the Bible says about this? Like, living together in this relationship, and then they get, and they're like, well, don't judge me. I'm like, no, I'm not judging you. There's grace. There's forgiveness. But I'm telling you what the Scripture says about this and how it's going to affect your life. Tragically, it's like that. We're out of here. Gonna bad mouth how judgmental you are on social media. That's the reality. And there's great, here's the thing we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus, when he comes, he's full of grace, full of truth. Both together. He calls us, are you gonna align your life to the truth? There's grace, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Set your life on a route that leads you towards life. All right. Now, that's his reaction. Nope, not going to test the Lord. Now Isaiah's getting a little ticked off. (laughs) Here's what he says. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You want a sign? You didn't, wouldn't ask for a cool sign? All right, God's going to give you a sign. It's going to be a little different than you thought. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Okay, that's a little bit different sign. I mean, Noah got a sprouted branch. Aaron had a staff that sprouted leaves overnight. Moses got a burning bush. Those are cool signs. Uh, Ahaz, your sign. And some scholars think that, um, that Isaiah is actually a widower because we see three different names in Isaiah. One was his first one, only a remnant will return. His, his probably third son is, uh, he's got a prophetic name too, all about the judgment, kind of freaky name, Right. And then this, this son named Emmanuel, God with us. And some think that he's, he's speaking of, you know, a, a young woman over here in the crowd that's, that's maybe he's engaged to or something. We don't really know. But what we do know about this prophecy is he says the virgin, and, and literally in, um, in Hebrew what's interesting about this is it's the word Alma, which, which means a young woman of marriageable age. That's the Hebrew meaning. A young woman of marriageable age. So it doesn't technically in Hebrew mean a virgin. But when the Bible was translated before Jesus into Greek called the Septuagint, this word they translated virgin in the sense that we all understand virgin in English. And this is a prophecy that has both a near-term exact fulfillment and also a long-term Fulfillment. You see this often with prophecies in Scripture. There's a near-term fulfillment that fulfills the prophecy, and then there's an even greater ultimate fulfillment down the road. Here's what he goes on to say. Number one, this child will be called God with us. And in Isaiah's time, in the midst of hardship that was to come, I'm with you. Just like the first name, Only a remnant will return, but I'm going to be faithful. I'm with you as you walk through this. Verse 15, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. 
For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. In other words, in the near term, this young woman's about ready to conceive and have a child. And before he has come of age, while he's still very young, these two kings you fear, they're not be a threat anymore. Verse 13, but, and here's where the sign gets a little scary, because you did not choose to step into trust. You've already made up your mind what you're going to do. You're going to go make an alliance with the king of Assyria, the real ultimate enemy. It's going to backfire. And because of that, check this out. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim or Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. You thought these two dudes were bad. This is going to backfire. Verse 18, in that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from, this is apocalyptic language, from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for the bees of the land of Assyria. Armies coming into the land, they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices and the rocks and all the thorn bushes and on all the water holes. Like there's going to be nowhere to hide, not even in the crevices. In that day, the Lord will use a razor. Here's how he describes the, the king, the troops of the Assyrians. A razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and private parts and to cut off your beard also. Whew. It's a little harsh. That'll get your attention. In fact, I was, t- I was talking to Jason as we were planning the message. He's like, that's in there? I'm like, yeah. Check this out. See, I left it in there because I because for all you guys in middle school, um, and the truth is, if you're a guy in here, you never get out of middle school, right? Pull my finger jokes are still funny. For some reason, we don't know why. Guys, just sense of humor. Um, <laughs> but the whole point behind this, um, some of you, this is like, the whole point of this is this is a shocking image. Some of you, you've never seen your dad without a beard, and he shaved it for the first time. You're like, oh, who's that, right? <laughs> The whole point is this is a shocking image. And he goes on to describe more and more of this situation. You know what happens? Exactly what God says. Ahaz, he goes on. He reaches out to the king of Assyria. His name's Tiglath-Pilzir III. King comes down. He wipes out Syria. He annexes it. And then he attacks Israel and begins deporting people the population of the people out and bringing new people in. Exactly what the Lord said would happen. And just like Isaiah prophesied 65 years later, the northern kingdom is unrecognizable. They've hauled all these new people in and all the old people out, and it's a completely different people group. In fact, if you've ever wondered why the people at Jesus' time despised the Samaritans so much, it's because these were the intermixed people that came in from all these other nations. They had all this weird worship and these different things. It's unrecognizable as a nation. In fact, we're told that the king came to help him out, but it just caused him more trouble in the end. And then we're told that in his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He is recorded in Scripture as being one of the most wicked kings. He was so enamored by the glamour of the Assyrians when he went up and met the king in Damascus that he even took one of their pagan altars and he had a recreation of it made in the temple of God. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you know what an abomination that is to God. All over they worshipped. He even 
sacrificed his own son to the idol demon god Molech. When he dies, the people didn't mourn. They didn't even bury him in the tombs of the king. That's how his life ended up. And what he did paved the way for inviting Assyria in for the ultimate destruction of the nation of Judah. Now, through all that, God was still faithful. God was faithful to preserve his remnant, the line of Messiah, to bring him back into the land even after they were deported, to keep a faithful remnant that followed and served only the one true God. And about 700 years later, Ahaz's name appears in the Bible one more time. Last time. It's found in a genealogy that starts at Abraham. And in verse 9, after great, 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 great from Abraham, we come to this. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. This is Matthew 1. <laughs> the genealogy of somebody pretty famous. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. We talked about him last week. Great king, follow God. And then it just goes on and on. 700 years of history. Great, 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 great. Verse 16, grandfather of Jacob. You've heard of him. The father of, actually, you probably haven't heard of this Jacob. You've heard of a Jacob. The father of Joseph. Wait, he's kind of famous this time of year. The husband of Mary, that's an interesting, weird little thing in a genealogy, a Jewish time. That doesn't normally happen. Mary was the mother, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now, you don't normally see mothers in genealogies. Matthew includes some very interesting ones. <laughs> Mary, the mother. Wait a minute. What's going on here? Well, we're told in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God was faithful. I'm going to invite Aiden up in just a minute. We're going we're to close with a little bit of the song we sang earlier. But what you see here. It's this beautiful thing. Matthew says, the thing that was prophesied 700 years ago that was fulfilled literally in the short term is finding its ultimate. It's so weird that he chose that word in, in Hebrew that could mean both a what we would think of as a virgin in English and also a young woman of marriageable age. And that child was born. And then the ultimate fulfillment 700 years later when the power of the Holy Spirit would overshadow Mary who said, here am I, Lord, I'm your servant and would conceive in her Jesus, Emmanuel, literally God with us. God's been with you all along. He's preserved you. But now in the literal fulfillment, God is here with us. He's taking on flesh. He's taking on, he's becoming like us, like human. To understand the trials and the pain we go through, the fears we have, the temptations we face, to ultimately, and, and it's so, and you, just like then, it's a weird sign, kind of unexpected. You don't, we, you, you, it'd be easy to miss. Same thing, it was easy to miss. The shepherds were the first ones to find out. They were nobodies. This king came, and he didn't ride into Jerusalem in a chariot. 
He rode in on a donkey. He took on humanity. He was despised by the religious leaders of the day who actually asked him for a sign. And what did he say? I'll tell you the sign I'm going to give you. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale, the Son of Man, I, will be in in the heart of the earth, in the grave, but I'll rise again. I'll rise again. And to those with a heart receptive to see the sign of Jesus, <laughs> they trust and they believe and find life in him and understand that through everything we face in this life, he promised, the one who predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, promised that I am with you and I will never leave you or forsake you. He's with you. You can trust him. You can trust him first for your salvation. Not in your own works. See, Ahaz trusted in himself. No, you trust God that he says, I make the way. You place your faith and trust in me and what I did when I died and rose again and you receive eternal life. Not because of anything you did. And you can trust him to carry you through. And you can trust. He said, I'm going to go back to the Father, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit who will dwell in you. God's presence in you. And I promise there is coming a time when I will come again. And that's what we wait for this season of Advent as we celebrate his first coming. Would you stand? Hey, as we close, let me just ask you, is there an area in your life where you may be ignoring some of the ordinary signs that God's placing in there? Small things, maybe something in his word, maybe the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. Where are you being tempted to trust and, and circumvent his plan instead of waiting on him in your life? Are you trusting him for the salvation that he so freely offers? If not, today's your day. Let's just bow our heads, close our eyes. If that's you in the room, I want to invite you. I want to invite you. You can pray a prayer like this right after me. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want to experience that life that you offer. Would you give me your grace? Would you give me your life? I trust that you're the son of God, that you died and rose again. Bring me into your kingdom, Lord. I want to live my life for you for the rest of my life.